Oh, what's up, everybody? It has been a while since we've been able to make some new uh, content, so... Um... This just in on Redeeming the Time News. A novel coronavirus is now sweeping across Asia from mainland China. More as soon as we have it. All right, look, kind of like sex for Asia, but if you think that, you know, some virus over in Asia is going to stop me from making new episodes, then, <laughs> oh, you are just so... This just in, the novel coronavirus has left Asia and is in Australia and the United States and France. I mean, all right, I guess it was expected that the virus was going to leave Asia, you know, eventually, since it's highly infectious and all that. But I mean, come on, that's not going to stop me from making more content. This just in, the director of the World Health Organization just declared coronavirus to be an international public health emergency. Okay, well, international public health emergency sounds kind of bad, but I mean... Uh, What's that going to do? I got a podcast. Surely I will still find time to do that. This just in. The death toll from COVID-19 just passed 2,000. Uh, 2,000? That's kind of worrying, I suppose. But I'm not going to let a mere 2,000 deaths stop me from... This just in. The World Health Organization now considers COVID-19 a global pandemic. If you think a mere global pandemic is going to stop... This just in, everyone in America is now being encouraged to stay home. If you think that Americans stay at home or to... Uh. This just in, businesses are now shutting down in America. Oh jeez, this might actually be bad. Businesses are shutting down. But I'm not a business. I've got an internet show. Surely this isn't going to stop me from... This just in. Individual states are now closing down businesses and issuing stay-at-home orders. If you think state-enforced stay-at-home orders are going to stop me from... This just in. Certain states are now on total lockdown with threat of arrest for certain violations. If you think that total lockdown orders and a threat of arrest for certain violations is going to stop me from... This just in. Coronavirus. Okay, you know what? You know what? Shut up. I'm here, I'm going to record a stupid episode for my stupid internet show. Surely now I should have tons and tons of time to record, because everyone's got to stay at home. Only the essential workers are going outside. This just in on Redeeming the Time News. drive through coffee businesses are considered essential. Oh, come on! Well, it has been a while since I have been able to record, which sucks because uh, everybody's kind of stuck at home right now, which is like the perfect time to uh, be making and listening to new content online. But regardless, we've been working through the book of John, and we're getting towards the end. So before I uh, start on any new material, I think we need to do a little bit of review here. So firstly... The first thing that we went over was how Jesus is here to create something even cooler than the law, and we spent some time in John 1 for that. After that, we've explored how John has used a theme uh, of repeated phrases to explain how Jesus is the new Moses and how he's greater than the ancestors. And uh, one of the ways that he explains how Jesus is the new Moses is that the miracles that Jesus performs, they mimic or they echo the ten plagues. It's a crazy way of uh, 
of uh, patterning something that you're thinking about to get your reader to think about too. Uh, Fascinating, fascinating. I love that episode still. We've explored what John thinks about Jesus and his divine identity, especially uh, in the intro passage about the word, the first 18 verses of chapter one. Uh, The fourth thing we looked at, John has uh, pounded into the book uh, this theme of truth, and he's distinguished between those seeking it and those who treat truth with indifference. In step with the theme of truth, uh, John has also called in seven witnesses to Jesus' identity, which is super cool. Uh, We did an episode on that. Uh, John has also made it clear that Jesus is one with the Father and that oneness is the goal of Jesus' very presence on earth, brought about by this this continual uh, use and phrasing and uh, terminology about oneness and wholeness. John has tied the whole book together with this theme of light which serves several metaphorical uses in biblical literature. I broke all that down uh, in an episode. But John hasn't just organized themes and made statements about his own thoughts and his own interpretations about who Jesus is. He's also included a theme of Jesus talking about himself. And as you could imagine, the stuff that Jesus says about himself is kind of important. That's what we're going to talk about on this episode. we typically refer to God as, um, as God. Yeah. But the question that I'm going to bring up here is, is that his name? Well, no, it's his title. That's why there's God, capital G, and like little gods. It's a term, it's a phrase, it's a symbol of his power and authority. We see that same thing that we do in English with God and gods and titles. We see the same thing happen in Old Testament literature in Hebrew. God is uh, very typically referred to in the Old Testament, uh, the Hebrew Bible, as Elohim, which can refer to uh, any higher beings, but can also refer to the ultimate higher being. So Elohim is a common term. It essentially means God. There can be God or there can be gods. And Elohim is the same word for both, just like in English, our God and God's. But in the beginning of Exodus, things begin to turn up a little bit. Moses is tasked with freeing the people from slavery in Egypt. Now, since what Moses is being told to do is kind of nuts, he's kind of not feeling too sure about that. It's a monumental task. He's thinking he's pretty insignificant. Um, And he has to convince the people that he's going to rescue that God is actually behind this. So with all that in mind, Moses asks God, what the name of the God who's sending him is so that he can tell the people. And what God tells Moses to say, well, what God tells Moses is, I will be what I will be. Uh, I believe it's echya esher echya in my broken Hebrew. And God tells Moses to say that echya has sent him a portion of that. So echya esher echya is I will be what I will be. And Echia is I will be, shortened term. Uh, we are more familiar with Echia as a 
uh, a transformation of the term. It's Yahweh. Or uh, Jehovah is probably what you've heard before. That's old Morse translation of, uh, of Hebrew. But Yahweh, that I'm sure you're familiar with, is what's called the covenant name or the name of God, which is super cool. So God tells Moses that his name is I will be what I will be or I will be for short. And he has him use that name as this symbol of divine authority. I will be has sent me. So there's all sorts of uh, stuff you could look into as to the significance of that name just on its own and its own meaning. Uh, I would recommend you look into that. But what's important that we're going to follow is that this is called the covenant name. It's like the most important name. In fact, it's so important. Jews for thousands of years have refused to actually speak the name. When they write it out, they write it out without vowels. Uh, so we really don't know how it was pronounced. We think it comes from so-and-so transformation. Again, this is more study that you can do. But Jews thought so highly of this name that they wouldn't even speak it or write it out properly. Uh, when they saw it written out without any vowels, they would say, uh, I believe, Adonai, which is a different word uh, that means Lord, but they would never use that name. So fast forward a little bit, and people are translating the Hebrew Bible into what's called the Greek Septuagint, or I think it's abbreviated LXX, or LLX, it's one of those, LLX or LXX, called the Septuagint. It's essentially the Hebrew Bible translated into Greek, uh, either for Jews who were living outside of Israel, they're living in the Greek world, or after uh, Greek culture and language was taking over in Israel. Uh, for whatever reason, the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek. And in Greek, they decided to translate Yahweh, I will be, into the present tense to better match uh, Greek, the Greek language. And that phrase is ego me" or I am. Instead of I will be, it's I am. Ego me." So remember how two seconds ago I said that the covenant name was so sacred that nobody would say it? Well, in case you forgot, uh, here's a flashback. But Jews thought so highly of this name that they wouldn't even speak it or write it out properly. Anyways, there happens to be one notable exception to that rule. <sighs> Seven guesses as to who that might be. Seven is obviously an important number in the Bible, right? Well, of course it is. It, it ties so many things together, like so many things. And if you want a pretty comprehensive study of it, I would recommend watching a Bible Project's video on Sabbath or listening to their accompanying uh, podcast series with it. Um, so Sabbath is really uh, what ties all the sevens together. So of course, uh, with this significant number seven in mind, when we're reading John's gospel and Jesus uses anything seven times, we know that's important. We've studied this already on the show. We've looked at the seven witnesses and seven miracles. Well, it turns out that ego me, the Greek translation of the super duper sacred covenant name, 
Yeah, Jesus uses it at seven very strategic moments in the book of John. Now, if that isn't a cue to pay attention, I really, I don't know what is. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on these, but I want to give you these references so you can maybe check them out later. And you can probably even spot them in English now that you know what you're looking for. Because sometimes he says, I am, and he just says, um, I think it's just ego, or maybe it's just a me. But ego, a me together is the covenant name. And he uses it in John 4.26, John 6.20, Now, 18.5 is the big one. So every time he says this, it's strategic, but at 18.5, things get pretty crazy. Uh, You should totally check that out. So again, I don't want to go into detail about all of these. I don't have the time. I recorded an episode of this before. Uh, I've tried this already, and I ended up realizing that what I had to offer for those uh, isn't all that interesting. But what you can go and look on your own uh, would be very beneficial, I think, to you. So I'll make sure that the list is put in the description in the notes so you don't just have to write down those references I just gave you. But as you're thinking, uh, if you want to pause and look at that, those are the the seven instances that I'm talking about right now. But I do want to still explore what these statements are generally about, even though I'm not going to look at each individual one. So at their core, these are statements of Jesus' authority. Plain and simply, Jesus is claiming to be God, the ultimate Elohim Yahweh. And this is obviously a massive, massive claim for someone to make. And the question becomes whether or not he has any substance behind those claims. Again, I would highly encourage you to check those out on your own. I mean, just imagine that you were one of these people. You're living in ancient uh, Judea 2,000 years ago under Roman occupation. And this guy was running around claiming to be God. I mean, I would imagine that your first response would be, is there any possible way that such a thing could be true? And I think your second question would be, supposing this is true, what's the reason for coming here right now? Why would God be here as human? Very strange. And what's the, what's the purpose? What's this mission all about? Well, it turns out that John left us another lucky seven lying around to answer that question, too. And that's what I really want to dig into. previous I am statements, but I would also assume that you've probably heard at least a couple of the ones that we're about to tackle. You see, Jesus didn't make only the seven claims to divine authority. He also made seven statements of earthly purpose. Divine authority versus earthly purpose. That's the key to these I am statements. And the seven about his earthly purpose are far more oftenly cited and understood. They're all fairly Sunday schooly, and I'm sure you've heard what these statements are. So uh, there's, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the sheep gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. 
And I want to just, I mean, quickly, I can't break every single one of these down, but here's like the short story for each of these. Uh, he says, I am the bread of life in chapter 635. And this is right after he has just fed uh, the 5,000. Jesus feeds the 5,000 and everybody says, whoa, that's cool. And the next day, he's kind of left that place. He kind of left pretty secretly. He had a lot of people there, but he left secretly. And some people went out and found him across, uh, I think, the Sea of Galilee. And there, they were talking to him about miracles. And Jesus kind of calls them out. And you can read the story for uh, yourself. In fact, I'd encourage that for all of these. You can read the story. And he says, you know, you guys are really consumed with the food and the miracles. You're really... Uh, really just looking for the earthly benefit of what it is that I'm doing. But that's not really what I'm doing it for. He explains to them in his own Jesus way that the bread and the fish that he had uh, transformed for them or multiplied for them was really a picture for something else. He's telling a story through his miracle about himself. And so while they're looking for another miracle, Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. And it's massively controversial because everyone thinks, oh, he's talking about cannibalism and they can't really, they can't wrap their mind around what he's saying is what it looks like to me. So he says, I am the bread of life. And he's giving a symbol of himself as something abundant. Pay attention to that key phrase there, abundance. So later on, he'll say, I am the light of the world. Uh, that's in the middle of a big discourse, and he repeats it a few times after that, but the first instance is in chapter 8, verse 12, and then he repeats it 9, 5, and then references it again in 12, 35 through 50. So uh, that's a key part of our light episode. You can look into that uh, some more on your own. Then we've got a twofer. He says, I'm the sheep gate and I'm the good shepherd, and he tells this almost in like a parable form uh, in chapter 10. This is just after the whole account about the blind man being healed and given his sight back. And he's explaining about himself the way he protects and gathers his own. And I think this has particular relevance here. It seems kind of abrupt because we've just had a lot of like blindness imagery in the narrative right before. So he suddenly starts talking about sheep and it seems kind of abrupt to me. But uh, just kind of my own reactions here. It seems like he's talking specifically about how the blind man, or the man who's not blind anymore, was evicted. He's kicked out of the synagogue. And I think this is uh, Jesus talking about how he welcomes people in and, uh, and protects them. And so he has two I am statements about that, with the sheep gate and the good shepherd. Then, during the narrative about Lazarus, and we all know Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead. Before that, Jesus is talking to, I think it's Martha. It's either Martha or Mary. I think it's Martha. In 1125, Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and the life. And he's trying to explain to Martha how he has power over life and death. And Martha's really focused on the end times. Yes, I know, eventually we'll all rise and exist in eternal life and whatnot. She understands that part of Jesus's teaching so far. But what she's not really clicking about is that Jesus has power over life and death now. So he says, I am the resurrection and the life. 
And it doesn't fully click with her, or with anybody for that matter, until Jesus follows up on this statement and boom, literally raises a guy from the dead who's been in the tomb for like three or four days. It's been a while. This guy was dead, and now he's not. So he has backup for his claim to be the resurrection and the life. Number six, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this, he's talking about how he's specifically uh, the only way, the only method of salvation is through Jesus. He says that during the farewell discourse in uh, chapter 14, verse 6. And then not much longer in the farewell discourse, he says, I am the true vine. And uh, the statement about the true vine is all about how about how Jesus is the source of life for his followers. And he's the connection that holds it all together. It's a brilliant uh, garden imagery. So again, I don't really have time in this episode to break every single one of those down uh, in full detail. There's like so much there. I highly recommend that you go and read these for yourself and do some research and see what puts them together. But in the broader sense, there is a theme that I want to jump out to you as you're reading these. And I mentioned it already. It's abundance. All of Jesus's I am the so-and-so, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the good shepherd, I am the true vine. All of them absolutely scream Garden of Eden imagery. They're all about life and peace and abundance. He's got food, livestock, plants, light, life, resurrection, all of them packed right into these statements used at just the right time. And need I remind you, that he has a goe me in here. He's coupled each of these with another use of the divine name. I mean, it's just brilliant, brilliant structure uh, on John's part in collecting these and in the way that uh, Jesus said these. It's just absolute brilliant narrative and discourse, in my opinion. And that's the theme. Remember, I said this is about Jesus's earthly mission. His earthly purpose is found in these statements. When he talks about himself and what he's doing here, he's here to be the bread of life and the light of the world. He's shining and giving wisdom and life and abundance. He's the sheep gate and the good shepherd. He's taking care of his people. He's the true vine. He's giving uh, an anchor for everything else to survive off of. He's bringing life and resurrection, and he's bringing a way to God the Father. Those are the purposes you can see in his I am statements. It's absolutely brilliant. So remember, our question was, who did Jesus think Jesus was? I think that the verdict lands here. Jesus believed that he was God, and not just any loosely imagined God. He believed that he was Yahweh, and he bore that name, which is the name that liberated his people from Egypt. And now he was here, and he was on a mission to liberate his people from sin and to build a new Eden, a kingdom full of abundant life, and to once again liberate his people from that which was enslaving them. And that is what Jesus thought about Jesus. Okay, so Jesus thought that he was God. So what? Was he? I can think of about a bajillion people who would say yes, and about as many who would say no. 
John has given us some convincing arguments here, but can we really trust any one group? Like, how do we know Jesus wasn't just saying this, or John isn't making this up? Listen, the reality is, even in Jesus' time, there was an immense controversy over Jesus' identity. John hasn't only included that in his gospel account, which he has, which is fair, he hasn't just included this in his gospel account, he's downright made it into a theme. Perhaps the most obvious and interesting theme in the whole book, and it's my personal favorite. And that's why I saved it for last. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going back to court in our finale episode of our John study on Redeeming the Time. <laughs>